This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox of Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For other sermons from Antioch, you can visit the church website at antiochchurchnc.org. Now, let's turn our hearts to the Word of God. And now, if you would all turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to be reading verses 16 through 33. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And then the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. All right, thanks, Kat. She says, Mr. Hahn, I started looking for my father and my grandfather. I'm like, are they here? I love listening to Kat read. She's in our home group, and I love when she reads scriptures. You know, I could just drive in my car and listen to her read the scriptures all day or even fall asleep to, the, to her reading scriptures. Maybe you should record yourself. That'd be phenomenal. All right, well, greetings, everyone. Pastor Fox and the entire Fox family extended our own vacation uh, this week. Just pray that they'd have a great time. All right, what a passage. What a book. Genesis is a neat book. 
You know, one of my favorite things about traveling internationally, and this is pretty standard no matter where you go, what continent, Asia, Africa, Africa, the Caribbean, and in most third world settings, they have these public markets. And so in the public markets, it's kind of like a flea market atmosphere for us uh, here in the United States. And so you have different vendors and they, they usually have a blanket on the ground and they have the, their items on there. And so you have beaded jewelry, you have uh, paintings, you have some weapons and, 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 and things like, like knives and spears when you're in Africa. Um, you have wood carvings as well. And so I borrowed uh, from Pastor Fox's office. He's got a plethora of these in his office. If you haven't seen them, maybe he'll give tours to you when he gets, gets back. But um, here's a wood carved giraffe, right? And so there's uh, several items like this on there. And, and when you walk into it, into the gate, um, I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun for me, but it's intimidating for a lot of people. And so when I lead people on teams, there's some people like, I'm just going to stay on our bus or on our van um, and not go. And I get that because when you go in here, you're, you're immediately greeted by somebody, a friendly, smiling face. And he says, my friend, he said, I will help you. You pick out anything that you want in here and then you come see me and we will settle. And he pulls out a small notebook from his pocket and he says, I'll name a price. You name a price. I'll name a price. And then we agree. <laughs> That's what he says. Right. And so, you know, you'll pick out you know, four or five of these, one for the family. Me, I've gotten a, I've gotten like a wood carved drum before or paintings or whatever. Not much more than, you know, 30 to $50 worth of items, right? And so then you're done. He's like, you have everything? And, and you can pick, this is what's amazing to me is you can pick from this person's blanket, walk all the way over here and pick from them. And they'll just let you take it as long as you're with one of these handlers because at the end, somehow they have their system where when you settle, money gets back to the right people. I don't understand that part because I'm going by then. But I've picked out everything, and he's like, are you ready? And we're like, yes. He says, okay. $300. I said, U.S.? Are we doing U.S. or shillings or, or Haitian goods? I mean, he's like, no, U.S. dollars. I'm sitting here thinking, I'm not paying more than $25 or $30 for this, right? And so then I'll come back and say $1. And he laughs. <laughs> and I say, look, just as outrageous was yours. He says, okay, okay, okay. And then he'll say $200, and I'm like, $2, you know? And so then it goes, it, it, it goes on, and then eventually you leave with an item that you're happy about or not happy about in terms of what you paid for it. But uh, you got to be willing to walk away. That's the other thing. But I don't know. Bargaining and negotiating like that in that type of environment is, is pretty fun for me. Um, here we have an interesting passage because it's in the midst of, of, of the transition to the Sodom and Gomorrah story. And on the surface, we see Abraham here bargaining with God for the lives of people in a town that he mostly doesn't know. I mean, yeah, he knows Lot and, and, and Lot's family. And, but beyond that, he doesn't know many people in Sodom. And yet he is bargaining, so to speak, or so it appears, um, for their lives. And what's interesting is to this point in Scripture, this, this passage is, is the longest. In fact, it started last week, right? So, so when God and the two angels visited Abraham and Sarah here at Mamre, this is the longest recorded dialogue so far in Scripture between human and God. Now, up until this point, God has carried it. It's been a one-sided conversation where God has come and he said, this is what I want you to do or I'm going to do this for you. And they can ask a question or two questions in there, but there's not much back and forth conversationally until this point in scripture. I find that very fascinating. And 
it's not so not the only time in the Bible that people negotiated with God. So no doubt learning from this experience, Moses, the author of Genesis, takes a very similar strategy, a very similar approach when he approaches God uh, after the golden calf incident when God said, okay, Moses, you and Aaron, you move out of the way. The Israelites, I'm just going to destroy them. This is, I can't tolerate this. And Moses takes a very similar approach and strategy to, to asking God to reconsider that as Abraham did here. No doubt Moses learned from it. Mary, the mother of Jesus, seems to influence Jesus into helping produce wine at the wedding of Canaan. Um, Hezekiah asks God for more years on earth, and his life is extended. And Jonah even has a negotiation with God over sending uh, judgment to the city of Nineveh. But um, what is this back and forth that we see here between Abraham and God really about? I mean, is, is, is Abraham changing God's mind? Um, what, what can we learn from this? I think there's, there's, there's two, as I read and reread this passage in the weeks leading up to this, the thing, there's two principles that really stuck out to me that I just want to focus on today. They're simple truths and nothing that you haven't heard or, or, or known before. You know, Psalm 103, 7, it says that God made his ways known to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. And that verse has always stuck with me because I want to be someone who concentrates on knowing the ways of God. If we understand the ways and methods that God acts, uh, the, way in, the ways in which he acts, then we'll, we'll recognize his deeds quickly and better and, and, and so forth. So, so I've always concentrated as I read scripture, is there a way that God is operating here that I need to pick up on or, or we can observe? And I think there's two ways in this short passage that are methods that God consistently operates in. The first is God uses us. And the second is that we are able to draw near to God. So God uses us. The first part of this passage really does have tremendous insight into the mind of the Lord and how faithful he is to carry out his way of working on the earth. The men start towards Sodom, and as was customary, and Pastor Mark touched on this yesterday about, or last week, about Eastern cultural hospitality, that Abraham walked with them a good distance, it says, to set them on their way. So they're leaving Abraham and, 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 and you know, what was proper... Uh, cultural hospitality, he walks with them to a certain point in their journey. That's what it means to set them on their way. He's seeing them off, we might say. And during the course of this journey, it appears that the Lord almost has a thinking out loud session here, that he's, he's thinking out loud enough for Abraham's benefit. We know that this is, this is what Jesus did when he walked on the earth, you know, he, he would pray sometimes and say, you know, I don't, I don't, I say this for your benefit, you know, when he's like, when he, before he broke bread, you know, he looked up and gave thanks for, to his father, right? There's certain times where Jesus said, I'm saying this for your benefit to my father. So you can hear this. And uh, th I think this is something similar that God is thinking out loud. But what is interesting is, is, is he gives us the why before he tells us the what, right? In verse 20, he says, he says, I'm going to go to Sodom, and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to inspect the city. I'm going to see if their outcry is is as as grave as it has sounded to me. But before that, he says, 
why he's telling Abraham this and why he's about to do this. And that's what is very interesting to me. In verse 18 and 19, he says that, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in Abraham. It's as if one of the main reasons he's saying that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah is to show Abraham something about who God is. God uses his children to carry out his plans to bless the nations of the earth. God says, I'm making Abraham, surely I'm making him a great nation, and I, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by Abraham and his children. As we focused on last week, nothing is too hard for God. God can accomplish anything that he wants to without anyone's help. If he wants to open up a prison door, if he wants to roll away a sealed rock over a tomb, no problem for him. If he wants to stop the sun in the sky, no problem for him. If he wants to convert a persecutor of Christians as he's walking into a town, that's not a problem for God. If he wants to open up a womb of a, of a woman who's too old to, to conceive and, 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 and nurture a child inside of her womb, that is not a problem for God. So when he said in Genesis 12 that through the seed of Abraham he was going to bless the entire world, he meant it. And it established a method or a way of working out his will on earth that we are still living under. God is so committed to this way of working that thousands of years later, God's primary way of working in the world still is using the family of faith in the likeness of Abraham to carry out his purposes. Now, you may be someone that says, God can't use me. Well, I'll stand up here today and politely say you're wrong. He wants to use you. God delights in using us. Now, of course, none of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. Even following after God, we will make plenty of mistakes. But keep in mind that God wants to use the ones that believe in him to perform his will. And as we emphasized last week, you know, we don't have to perfectly know everything or have all of our thoughts about God in perfect order, right? As, as Pastor Mark pointed out last week, the first part of this meeting or visit from God to Abraham was really to move Sarah's faith along in a way that she was going to be able to participate, actively participate in what was happening um, and believe in it. And that was one of the main reasons for God's visiting of Abraham and Sarah at this particular time. And Sarah didn't have it all understood right, but she did have a trust in God and, and that was nurtured. And Abraham didn't have it right all the time. And we'll talk about that more in a second. But God's children share the hope of Christ to the entire world. The children of Abraham, and to be clear, I mean the ones who have believed in God, for those are the true children of Abraham. The children of Abraham bring in other people to God's family of faith. There's going to be people from every tribe and every language in heaven. He's saving people from all different family groups in the earth. Now, he's not saving every individual person, but he's saving representatives of all family groups in, in the entire world. There's going to be such wide representation in eternity, in heaven, because God's chosen, his saved, carry God's name, his love, his message to everyone as God 
directs. God's elect demonstrate the ways of God for others to see. We're the keepers of the ways of the Lord so other people can see what He's like and be drawn to trust and serve Him. God uses His children to do good in the entire world. You know, if you look at history, wherever the Gospel has gone, it has had a very positive impact in the communities. Okay? Hospitals, schools, first a lot of times, first hospitals, first schools established in communities were by Christian missionaries. They, they lead in advances in industry and commerce and in inventions and innovations. We lead the way in, as Christians in correcting injustices that are in societies. Communities improve wherever the gospel is growing. Not getting perfect, but they improve. One of my trips to India, I had the pleasure of um, participating in a ceremony where uh, one of the church partners that we work with in India, the Evangelical Church of India, was being honored for their positive work in the community. And a local politician who was Hindu, well, he was a Hindu, he was, an, he was a, a non-believer, he came to, to, uh, to speak and, 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 and basically share this award, this honorary plaque that they were giving to recognize that in this area, this church was making a difference in the community. And he started out his speech, he said the very first hospital brought to the nation of in India and the very first school brought to the nation of India and the very first printing press brought to the nation of India was brought by Christian missionaries. And he talked about how their life and their society had changed for the good because these Christian missionaries came and brought these things that bettered their society. That is the legacy of the gospel, and we are part of that legacy. When we explain the salvation of Christ to someone, it is letting our light shine before others so that they can see our good works and glorify God in heaven. So when we serve someone in need, when we pursue what is noble and good, when we put away all wrong, when we display, we are displaying to those who can see the beauty of following after God. And notice in verse 19, I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him. That God says our, the primary responsibility of God's children is to pass on to their children the ways of God. Yes, we're to share with others in distant lands, in our neighborhoods, outside of our homes. We're to live our lives before a hurting world so that they can see the hope that is in us. But God emphasizes the primary way this is passed is from parents to children. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and his whole family was saved from the flood. Lot is rescued from Sodom with who? His wife and his two daughters. There's blessing in the family institution established by God. That means something to God, the family order that he has set up. So we're to lead our household. We as parents are to lead our households in doing righteousness and doing justice. That's what God says here. They're to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Those are the two commands that God emphasized here, not the only two for sure, but the two that he emphasized here that Abraham was to walk out before his children. We're to lead our households in selfless love and showing mercy. God is sovereign, of course, and I'm not saying this depends on us, but notice the very last part of verse 19. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. 
Here we see the balanced tension between God's sovereignty and Abraham's responsibility and subsequently our responsibility as his children before God. If we fail God, God is still going to bless the world. He's still going to bless the world if we fail him or if we just sit with our arms folded and say, I'm not doing that, Lord. But it is a lot more fulfilling and joyous to be used by God to accomplish his ways rather than sit out or resist him. Participating in God's plans to bless the world leads to fulfillment. If you want to get into a healthy cycle with God, the best thing you can do is be available to be used by God and he will bless you for that use. And then you'll be blessed by the outcome of him using you. And that'll make you want to be available again to be used by God. And then he'll bless you again for the next use. And then you'll be blessed by the outcome. And you get in a healthy cycle that way. It is a cliche, but there's truth to it that I'm blessed to be a blessing, right? You see those signs. You see people in t-shirts, you know, I'm blessed to be a blessing. That, what it really means is God qualifies us, equips us, positions us, resources us, however you want to describe it, so that we can manifest him to the world. When that happens, there's joy and fulfillment rising up in us as we live out our faith that pleases God. There's going to be failures, but when we're used to carry out God's plan, there's going to be greater fulfillment. So that's the first way that I see here in this conversation that God is having with Abraham is that God wants to use us. It's his choice to use us. It's his good pleasure to use us. Now we see in verse 22 that the men turn, they go on, right? So there's a spot, there's a time where they stop. They must have known that they got far enough, but God wasn't done with Abraham, so he sends the two angels on into Sodom ahead, and Abraham had reached the point. And notice what it says in 23. It says that Abraham drew near. Drawing near. See, it seems to make sense that if God has chosen to work through the people of faith to carry out His purposes, that there would also be a way for us to figure out what His purposes are. What are we supposed to be doing? So therefore, God has made a way for us to have clear communication open between us and He so that He can lead us and we can follow these men go on, Abraham draws near, and then he begins to ask questions, and God welcomes it. So I think, my friends, I hope that it never is lost on any of us, that the living God Almighty welcomes those of us who carry his name to come to him, to approach him. We can come into his presence, and we can ask him for his help, because he has graciously paved the way for us to do that. Now some may be sitting out there saying, well, I can't go to God because I don't deserve to. I've messed up so much. And you're likely right in evaluating your own worth. But thankfully, approaching God doesn't depend on your own performance. Because when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, he made a way for us in our sinfulness and in our imperfections to come to him. So yes, none of us deserve to be able to approach the holy God, the almighty God of the universe. But we don't always get what we deserve and praise God for that reality. So we must not say that God doesn't want to hear from me. 
because this story and many others in Scripture failed to support that idea. God is willing to hear from us. He's decided to share his purposes with us and use us to carry out his purposes on earth. So Abraham approaches God in the rest of this passage six different times asking him to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. And God didn't rebuke him once for it. Abraham was learning himself. He was discovering for himself, what can I get away with in approaching God? How many times is he going to let me come and ask this question or ask a version of this question to him? And we benefit because we also discover from this and other passages God's substantial willingness for us to keep coming and asking him for anything, even the same thing over and over and over and over again. Now let's remember, you know, we've chopped this up into two different Sundays, but this really is one, this visit is kind of one continuous thing. And so sometimes we lose sight of that as we're doing this. And I understand we can't, you know, preach all 50 chapters of Genesis at once and actually learn anything. So we're going through it year by year. But, you know, this is this this particular scene is tied into what we looked at last week, and it started um, when God visits Mo, uh, when God visits Abraham at, at Mamre, and and right before this scene, if you remember two chapters, no, just one chapter back in seventeen, God sealed His everlasting covenant with Abraham and His lineage by instituting circumcision for all the males in the household, and. You know, it was presented a few weeks back that circumcision was the old covenant and the new covenant is the circumcision of the heart. And that experience is activated by our faith, right? If we've placed our trust or our confidence in the one true God, that we, when we believe that he is who he is or he, that he is who he says he is according to the Bible and that we can do what he has promised or what, that he can do what he has promised to do for those who trust in him. We have activated our faith, right? And I don't think it's a coincidence that this lengthy and intimate conversation happens right after Abraham's entire family, including Ishmael, you know, is, is, is sealed with this covenant. So, but don't miss this. A right relationship with God is based on belief. Remember, righteousness was credited to Abraham's account all the way back in chapter 15 when he was brought to look out and number the stars and look at the heavens. And that's when Abraham believed deep down in what God had been revealing to him, even though it wasn't the first time he heard it. It was the first time he genuinely and sincerely believed in it. Our trust in God leads to a right standing with God. And then out of that trust, we have opportunities to demonstrate through our words and our actions that we do belong to God. But our words and actions are just merely proof of that qualification. It, it doesn't qualify us. Our faith qualifies us. So Abraham was right with God, which is why God visited him and allowed him to be in his presence for so long here. And up until this point, sure, Abraham had plenty of doubts. And he got it wrong plenty of times, right? He had plenty of doubts that a big family was going to come from he and Sarah. In fact, he took matters in his own hands and did it in his own strength. Um, with Hagar, and and he lied to kings uh, up until this point. And even after this point, we're going to see a second time in a couple more weeks that he, he goes down the same path, right? So Abraham was nowhere near perfect, but he kept renewing his trust in God's plan. And God helped him in that. 
right? God visited him at the beginning of chapter 17, and he said, no, Sarah. You know, Abraham just said, hey, I've done this over here. No, it's with Sarah that this is going to happen, that this promise is going to happen. Perhaps no story in all the Bible emphasizes how much faith and believing God is the doorway for us to approach and draw near to God than the thief on the cross, right? The thief knew that death was imminent. I mean, either he wasn't getting down from that cross alive. He knew that in mere moments, hours or a few days at the very most, he was going to die. He was trapped on the cross. He was afraid, okay? You can say his primary motivation for asking God to remember me was probably out of fear. He didn't have any other option. You know, he may have never have heard any scripture read up until that point in his life. We don't know. But we know for sure he wasn't going to have an opportunity to read the Bible ever again or read any scripture ever again while he was on the cross. He may have never entered a synagogue in his entire life. We don't know. But we know he wasn't going to have a chance to do that again. He certainly wasn't going to, he could have lived a terrible life. He likely did, right? He, he was on the cross and he wasn't going to have a chance after that to right any wrong that he had ever done. But when he looked at Jesus and sincerely said, remember me, Jesus responded and said, I tell you certainly, you will be with me today in paradise. What a stunning example of God's grace in light of one's plain and desperate faith. So we can confidently come to God knowing that He wants us to, yet we must remember that we are approaching the Holy God and that should cause us to approach Him carefully. We approach God according to His character. And that's what Abraham did in his asks here with God. God, He knew that Abraham was, I'm sorry, Abraham knew that God was a just God. So two times he tells him, or says, asks, you know, God, you're not going to sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous. That wouldn't be right. Doing that would violate the essence of who he knew God to be. And he asks in verse 25, he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And for those skipping ahead to next week, for those that have wondered, you know, was God just in destroying Sodom? I do want to point you to verse 4 in chapter 19. Just slide your eyes to verse 4 in chapter 19. It says, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So lest you think there was nobody that was innocent, or lest you think there were other people that deserved to be rescued with Lot. That verse tells you, if you were not in Lot's house that day, you were outside of his door asking for those two angels. God is just. But Abraham also appealed to God's mercy because he knows that he's slow to anger. He knows that he's abounding in steadfast love. So he, he asked for the wicked to also be spared if God were just to find a few righteous people. It wasn't just, hey, God, you're going to save these righteous. I mean, you're not going to let the righteous die with the unrighteous if you find them, right? Well, if you find any, would you also preserve and save the, the unrighteous? Save them all? Spare them all? God agrees to those terms. We too come to God based on what we know of Him. 
We can't ask God to knowingly do things for us in this world contrary to His nature with any real expectation of Him positively answering that for us. So understanding the vastness of God's nature, it adds balance to our prayers. We know He is just, yet He's merciful. We know that He's loving, yet wrathful. We know that He's eternal, yet He's imminent. Right? He's in the moment with us. So because He is Lord, we approach Him in humility. Seeing that we ourselves are lowly and in great need, and we see Him as the all-sufficient One, that's foundational in our prayer attitudes towards God. Notice what Abraham, how Abraham sets up his asks. He asks Him, as I said, six separate times. And he starts out, he says, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. And he uses that twice. And another time he says, O Lord, let not the Lord be angry with me, and yet I will speak. He uses that twice with God. Abraham understands it's not our place to command God or make demands, but to humbly ask. So a lot of people call this Abraham bargaining with God. I, we can't bargain with God. Abraham can't bargain with God. This is an ask. Okay, When we bargain, back to my original story, we bargain in marketplaces because I had cash that they wanted and they had an item that I wanted. I had something of value, they had something of value, and now we're meeting about it, right, to exchange that. But when we come to God, we don't have anything of value to offer Him. That's why it's never a bargain. It's always an ask, a humble ask. And He permits us and desires us to do that. Finally, because God works His purposes through us and has qualified us to approach Him, we can intercede for our family, friends, and the entire world. What a great responsibility that is. See, we identify with people who are in tremendous need because we are in tremendous need. Yet we have access to an all-powerful God because of what Christ did for us and us placing our faith in that. So there's a place where somehow in God's economy, His children, as representatives of those in great need, and access to an all-powerful God can influence this all-powerful God for their sakes. Our prayers do move God because that's what He has purposed. That's how He's designed it. And I don't pretend to understand how that works, how we influence the Sovereign Lord's choices and actions, but I see evidence of it. And when I hear God multiple times say, ask and you shall receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you, I choose to believe what God has said about our influence before Him. Final story and then we'll pray. I assume there's probably not many people in here that know of the name Daniel Nash. Does anybody know or have heard of the name Daniel Nash? Okay. There's probably a few more people in here that have heard the name Charles Finney. Have people heard the name Charles Finney? 
Yes. Charles Finney was a, one of the leaders of the, of the Second Great Awakening in the United States. It took place about the beginning of the 1800s, okay? He was a famous preacher. He's actually, many people attribute him to be the father of the altar call. So he was the first person that would preach a sermon, and then he'd ask everybody to bow their heads, close their eyes, and he'd say, if you want to respond to Christ, come on up, right? Um, did it more tactfully than that, obviously, and more powerfully than that. But he was credited with the father of the altar call. He preached in the New York and New England states in the early 1800s, and he is credited with leading 500,000 people to Christ in the early 1800s. If you take the percentages of the population, that would be somebody today leading 7 million Americans to Christ through their preaching. Okay, so this guy had tremendous influence. And not only that, they said that they did a survey. I don't know how they did this, but three to four years afterwards, 85% of his converts were still walking with the Lord. 85%. That's phenomenal. Okay, for all the Billy Graham fans in here, he was asked the question one time, what's your greatest regret? And he says, my greatest regret in life is knowing that the number thousands of people I've led to the Lord not very many of them will continue walking with the Lord years down the road. Now, that's not Billy Graham's fault, but he understood the reality. You're in that moment, and sometimes people make an emotional response and all that stuff. But when this man, Charles Finney, preached, he so thoroughly converted the towns that they said that the jails and courts had little to do for the next generation. 20 years after this man went into town and preached for several days, Okay, crime went down to almost zero because he so thoroughly converted the entire town. Just a staggering ministry. Daniel Nash was the prayer warrior for Charles Finney. He would go ahead to the next town when, when Charles had two or three days left to preach in a certain town. He went ahead to the next town and he started praying for that town that God would send revival to that place in the first few days that Charles Finney was in that town, he would remain and pray. And they're usually in any town, they said there, that there were about three to five people that lived in that town that would join Daniel Nash praying. That's about it. That had a fervency to pray. Daniel Nash passed away, and two weeks after he died, Charles Finney stopped his evangelical ministry in this way because he knew that the, the, the power that he got and received was from the work, the prayer work that Daniel Nash did interceding. The all-powerful God on behalf of lost people. And when that dried up, he knew his ministry would dry up as well. So he went into different ways of serving God. So why is this passage here? Two main principles, I think, are plain here. God uses his faithful to impact the world for him. And his faithful can draw near to him as often as we need to. Let's pray. Lord God, we are thankful to be used by you, Lord. We are thankful, Lord, that we, as part of Abraham's children, Lord, we are blessed by you so that all of the nations of the earth can therefore be blessed. And we know we have a part in that. Even here in Alamance County, we can live that out. And we thank you for that. 
Lord, we're also grateful that we can approach you confidently yet carefully because you've made a way for us to do that through your son, Lord. We're thankful, Lord, that we can draw near to you as Abraham did on this day. And we can ask and ask and ask. And you're willing to hear those asks, Lord, and respond. So, Lord, give us greater confidence to approach you, Lord. Give us a greater desire to approach you for things, Lord, and humbly ask for you to move in our family, in our friends, in our world. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Mark Fox of Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. Antioch meets every Sunday for worship at 10 o'clock a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon. You can download other messages by Pastor Fox at antiochchurch.cc. You can also learn how to order his books or subscribe to his blog at jmarkfox.com.